0: Hello, Brian. Hey, Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, or in this particular episode, it should probably be called Je Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today, we're going back to the summer of 2009, where Roger picked up number 14, tying Pete Sampras in just under seven years, a comment that Pete Sampras was sure to let everybody know about, uh, and of all places, Roland Garros. Lots of ups and downs, Brian, for Roger in 2009, to say the least, uh, and we'll get into some, if not all of it. But first... Roger's got new shoes, partnered with a Swiss shoe company called On Thoughts Reactions. Well, when he partnered with them,
1: I think it was first announced last fall, and it seems like he might have bought some equity in the company uh, to that extent. You're thinking, okay, is this what he's going to wear? Because we've talked about his clothes a lot. He's got the Uniqlo now in terms of the apparel, but he's still wearing the Nike shoes. So is he going to start wearing this company's shoes on court? you're thinking, that seems strange. They have no experience making tennis shoes. Um, so the answer is no, but he was still doing commercials for them and different advertising. But now they've got their, their first uh, Federer model limited to 1000 ticket price $250, so a little bit steep, already on eBay, well over $1,000. $1,500 you've got one. I just checked. Yeah. Is it called the Roger or the Federer? The Roger. E- equally humble. The Roger, yes. Um, equally, I- humble. <laughs> equally humble. Equally humble. You and I were texting about it. Um, I-, I think it's a sharp look because, you know, you, you worry about like, okay, is it a white shoe released by Roger Federer? Could this look a little too like dad mowing the lawn shoes? But no, it's got a nice like old school, but very clean, classic look. Big fan of it. Uh, of course, price tag's is going to uh, probably keep it off
0: my list, but I think it's sharp. I confess I tried to buy it and then I debated like would I even wear them or would I just look at them and that's that was the reason where I decided that probably wasn't for me but I did go online to try to look and they were already sold out and I watched the whole on promo video that they posted there was like a three-hour thing where he did like he played tennis against the internet and he answered questions but 1500 is just too steep but I think they look incredible I think they look awesome I think it's super smart of him to do something with a Swiss company he could go anywhere he wants. He could put his face on any product, essentially, and he chose something that had a little bit more of an independent spirit to it, which I thought was cool. And if I, the direct comparison that came to mind for me was the Steph Curry shoe that Under Armor did, and um, that was the ultimate dad shoe, if you will, yes. and I thought it was terrible. This was all white, but it had a certain edginess a minimalistic sleekness to it. And I would have rocked them all day, and I whereas I would have never even entertained the idea of the Steph Currys.
1: Right. This looked like something that you would see being worn at Wimbledon like 30, 35 years ago, but not in a bad way. Like, it's got like a retro look, but it's still very modern. I think it's it's a sharp look.
0: Yeah. It was important to him that it have, he mentioned on that on special that they posted about how he was a fan of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s he was actually started complaining about the nineties without saying the word Agassi. He was like, I didn't like the shift to neon and, you know, various, you know, color palettes and whatever. So that, that was an important thing for him. Um, why only a thousand? What's the play there? Obviously scarcity is, is, you know, marketplace dynamics for supply and demand, but are they testing it? Do you think it'll become like more of a mainstream shoe that everybody can buy?
1: No, my guess is you answered your question with uh, the first part of your statement, just the scarcity, driving demand. We're, we're sitting here talking about this shoe now that yeah. neither of us will probably ever own, so that when they maybe introduce something that's not called the Roger, maybe it's called you know something else Federer-related, but not quite as direct as the Roger, and they take $50 off the price or $100 off the price, maybe that's their mass market entry. But to, to get it going, get people talking about it, this seems like a good way to do it.
0: 120, 150, that's the sweet spot. Agreed? For a Roger Federer shoe, for a Jordan type shoe, for a LeBron type shoe, 120 to 150 is reasonable.
1: Yes, I I would agree with you there.
0: But I will say in their defense, if you look at, if you have any sort of like, I don't know what your sneakerhood aficionado status level is, I read about it and I kind of like keep up with it on the periphery. And I do know that the aftermarket for a lot of these shoes is just insane. So for the retailer to get For the manufacturer or for the retailer to get a little bit of that edge, it makes sense to me. I mean, there are Jordans that are going for like seven, eight, nine hundred bucks that are used. So I do get it. And seeing it go for 1500 on eBay right now, what, two days in, there's probably an argument for why the price is that high. But again, we shall see. I would love to see it go mainstream. I think that this whole uh, post career, especially of these legend athletes, there's like maybe seven or eight of them that can do these incredible things and go in these incredible directions. Obviously, LeBron, obviously, Jordan, Sean White, like the one sort of consequential figure in every sport. These are the kinds of things that we like to follow as fans, right? What they do next, what moves they make, what succeeds, what fails. Um, It's all just fascinating stuff to think about and talk about.
1: Very much so. And especially as the money has gotten so, there's so much money involved in sports. These athletes have done a really good job of of recognizing their opportunities not just and okay you've got to be very good at your sport to get yourself in that position so it's not like but you talk like LeBron and his business partner Maverick Carter and like the, the film production company they just rounded up a whole what a hundred million dollars worth of funding in it um so that's where we're going to be hearing about LeBron for probably the next 30 40 years um Tiger Woods has his clothing he's now designing golf courses it's yeah it's that second act third act in some cases that does get pretty interesting and you know, to the it's interesting seeing people succeed and fail because I, I'm not saying Michael Jordan has failed, but as an NBA owner, he has fallen short of what he did as an NBA player. And that's maybe the, whereas you look at somebody like Magic Johnson, who's a gazillionaire because pretty much every business venture he's touched has turned to gold. King Midas. Yeah.
0: Now that Roger has set the precedent, Brian, do you see a, the Nalbandian in the offing,
1: uh, only because he always uh, w- was dressing in some of the more—I say—obscure, but to us in North America, some of the more off the radar, like South American clothing manufacturers. So maybe somebody wants to team up, with, team up with him. Good example, actually, in the tennis world. Remember the uh, the Chinese company that Dwayne Wade wore? Like mm. I think it was like Li Ning. Yeah, yeah. Um, they have a big relationship with Svetlana Kuznetsova, the Russian women's players, won a couple of majors. Uh, Somebody's still out there, pretty high level. She's fun to watch. I've always really enjoyed watching her. She's a big fighter on court. Uh, but she's got her own logo from that company, uh, her own shoe. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's possible.
0: Look, it's the only way to do it. And it's, if there was another sport that would lend itself to players having their own shoes, like basketball has done so well, Tennis makes logical sense. I would rock the Del Potros, you know. Uh and obviously the Agassiz are my all-time favorite shoe, probably that Nike ever made, for obvious reasons. It looks like a basketball shoe, but it was a tennis shoe. Um, do you have a favorite tennis shoe from any era? Um, I mean, I guess you gotta go with the classic Stan Smith. Like it's
1: it's the Stan Smith. I mean, the Agassiz shoes are, are pretty great. I'm trying to think. Um, Because those are really the only two you think of. Like You start thinking like, oh, there's so many cool tennis shoes. But then, yeah, but if you ask the average person, name two tennis shoes, they'll probably say Stan Smith and Andre Agassi, like in that order.
0: I feel like that's a disservice to to tennis players. I feel like they've been mismarketed, Brian. I feel like there's an opportunity for a lot of these players that have these fans. And we're learning right now. We're going to talk about the U.S. Open just in a second here. A, a big part of that is fans show up, they like certain players and certain players have certain styles. Like there should be a Nick Kyrgios shoe. There's an argument for that. There's a, there's a vibe, a style, a way of life and an essence that is embodied in a shoe. And I feel like the, it's an opportunity. And I, and I think I actually really strongly believe that Roger Federer has opened up sort of a, the tides and we'll see how that plays out. Um, I agree with your general point, but I think it's just that so many of these
1: players, they're, everybody wants a Nike deal basically. Okay. okay. Or... And then once you get into Nike, I, I don't think they're really dev- – like Keir- Nick Kyrios wears Nike, but you know Nike's got a lot of different things going on where I don't think they're designing shoes for every single player they represent. I mean, look at the NBA, the number of players who will Fair. wear LeBrons who aren't just LeBron James. I think it, it kind of falls almost into that category.
0: There's a handful I agree of with players. your point. There's a handful of players is all I'm saying. Like, there's more than just Roger Federer that could do this. And who knows how big the money would be, but I feel like it's a it's a it's a marketing opportunity for all parties involved and maybe something to look at now that the revenue streams of tennis or sports in general might be changing.
1: That's very possible. actually, just putting a bow on this conversation and transitioning us forward i uh, sh- I'd be remiss and mention. I just mentioned Svetlana Kuznetsova with her logo. she won the French Open this year that we're talking about here in 2009. I know she won the u s Open in two thousand and four and I knew she had a French open. I just couldn't remember if it was oh nine or ten, so I just checked and She was the women's champion that year.
0: Serena has a logo now, which obviously goes without saying. Uh, Roger has a logo. Nadal has a logo. That
1: actually, Vic, let me stop you right there. That was a big question that Roger got was, you've got these shoes. Are they going to have the RF logo? Because the RF logo was still owned by Nike. And Roger said that, I, I, I think... Essentially, in this Q&A, he said that I now own the logo. I've reacquired the logo, but we wanted to move in a different direction. So we didn't put the logo on the shoe. So it sounds like the RF logo, that monogram, that is, we're not going to see that anymore. At least that's what it seems like.
0: So Nike owned the logo and Roger acquired it from them.
1: That's what Roger seemed to indicate this week, because that was a big thing when he left to go to Uniqlo, why you don't see Uniqlo with that logo.
0: Let's just have some fun with that, Brian. How much does that cost? Do they do right by Roger or do they milk him?
1: Um, I would think they did right by Roger. You don't want Roger Federer as an enemy.
0: Yeah. Are we talking in the single-digit millions, though? Or are we talking in the many multiple millions? I would think single-digit. Okay. Fascinating, right? That that could be a limited podcast series unto itself. The reacquisition of the Roger Federer logo as told yeah. by the voices that negotiated the deal.
1: That would be very fascinating. I'm sure there's all NDAs signed and nobody's talking, but yeah, yes.
0: Right, right. But after enough time, though, right? After enough time yeah. elapses and all parties have, enough funds have flowed in both directions. there'll be There's a story waiting to happen there. Uh, who owns the Nadal logo? That's
1: Nike. I would think it's Nike um, because he's still with Nike. Yeah. But then the Djokovic logo is different because he's, I think, had that, through a couple of different places. Yeah. That little D with like the devil curl at the end kind of. (laughs) Um, Who
0: has a logo that shouldn't have a logo? Does anybody? um, The guys that we named are the usual suspects that are, but is there any, is logo-fying your game a thing or is it rare-fied air? It's rare. Roddick had one late in his
1: career. Um, Sampras never had one. No, Sampras never had one. Agassi
0: never had one. Right. I'm trying to, but think. he had rebel. I think,
1: I think that was just the name of the camera. And they were like, let's get this guy to market it because he plays himself up as a rebel. Okay. I'm trying to think because There are definitely players that I've raised my eyebrows and said, they have, they have a logo. Um, but none of them are coming to him. Andy Murray has a logo. Stan actually has gone in a different direction, which I, which I like he's got, um, he wear. So when he won the French open, he wore these hideous, like red plaid shorts. Uh, for the entire tournament, so now he's adopted just those shorts as like his little personal good luck thing. So oftentimes, I don't know if he's still doing it. Like on his bag, he'll have a little like a keychain almost, and it's got those shorts. Like you can still buy that keychain with those shorts on it. Nice. Uh, so that's a cool thing. Yeah, the Murray one's cool. It's um, it looks like an AM, but it also looks like a seven seven because um, it was seventy seven years since a. Brit, I think since a British man had won Wimbledon. But then also there's, I think his company is now 77. Like he's got his own little, you know, private shop. Um, so yeah, he's got his own logo too. Did
0: Sharapova have a logo? No, I don't think she did. She was all about branding from day one. Interesting. Right. But
1: that's another one like with Nike where uh, you wonder- true how much, like we talked before, how nobody was allowed to wear like the sleeve patches with yeah. it, with anybody except for Lee Na. Um, so you wonder if that comes into play there.
0: Next little bit of news, actually. I wanted to run through your filter here. Uh, the Novak fallout continues. Um, he called what's happening to him a witch hunt. Uh, I don't know if that was him or, if his, or his dad or maybe the two of them sort of having a little powwow about it. Many top players, including him, are mum about playing in New York for the U.S. Open. Uh, I believe Nadal hasn't officially said it, but his schedule is such that it looks like it would be either impossible or ill-advised for him to play in the U.S. Open. Uh, What's your download on what's going on where we're at with Novak, with the fallout, and with the U.S. Open star players not playing or playing? Well, I think
1: with the Djokovic stuff, And fortunately, everybody's testing negative now who had tested positive, including Djokovic. Um, So that's that's the best news, first of all, here. Um, But Djokovic, yeah, essentially telling Serbian media that he felt like he was part of a witch hunt. Um, I think some of that might be coming from, you know, we talk about he oftentimes for maybe one of the best players, maybe the best player of all time is never the fan favorite because he's going up against two of the most beloved players ever. So there could be that chip on his shoulder. Um, but the other thing too, and I doubt this is what he means. I'm not trying to assign too. Oh, sorry. I'm not trying to assign too much to what he means um, that he, you know, he's the face of this tour. But he wasn't the one putting all the rules and regulations in place. I mean, they had government approval to go forward. Whether they should have is a whole nother argument. But it's not just him said, hey, let's just do this. Let's flout every rule. Let's go out and just go for it. Um, So I can understand what he means there, that they they need a scapegoat. Uh, But when that comes with the territory of being world number one, head of the Players Council, you are going, you know, you're going to get the praise and you're going to get the blame when things don't go right. And they certainly didn't go right here. It's just a good thing that everybody so far seems to be coming through okay on the health side.
0: What do you make of this U.S. Open may or may not play thing? Is it posturing or is it real? No, I think it's very real. Um, just
1: because the way the schedule's condensed, I think, and let's be frank, as we sit here in mid-July, you look at early July still, um, you look at how this country, the U.S., has handled this pandemic compared to other countries. I mean, if you're, if you're a player who's got a good amount of money in the bank and you're thinking about playing uh, the Madrid masters and the French open, which come right after uh, the U S open, why would you want to get on a plane and come to the United States? I mean, I I can think of many reasons why you would, but I would also understand why you wouldn't want to. Um, So I think it's very real the way the ATP is going to do the rankings. Now um, I think, pretty much ensures that Nadal is not going to come because he would normally have to defend his points. But the way it's going to work, those points like, wouldn't fall off as much for Nadal. He's going to play the Madrid, or he's on the entry list for the Madrid Masters, which starts, I think, like the day after the US Open final. That would roll into the French Open. So I, I just don't see any way he's going to play three tournaments on two different continents, on two different surfaces in the span, really, of a month.
0: Mm. So it's possible the U.S. Open could suck. No Nadal, no Federer, no Djokovic, and no Dominic team. At least that's what I read. Team also falls into that category too because of the clay. Like clay is his best surface. Yeah, but
1: you're still going to get enough play. Like, it, and this is all assuming the tournament goes on yeah. and is able to take place. Um, you know, Daniil Medvedev just committed. He was the runner-up last year. Love him. Uh, the way he the way he played last year. I, I'd certainly think. You, you pencil them in as the favorite. Sure. Um, Especially you know, maybe with all those guys is,
0: out.
1: Exactly. Maybe this is John Isner's time to to win a major. Um, so it'll be different, certainly. It won't be ideal. But look, the way we're – I mean, you could say this in March and you can even say this in July. You're going to sign for anything right now, like any kind of live competitive sports mm. that there's actual chips on the table. So I think it, you, you put it in perspective that way and you, you deal with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I got to admit, I'm excited for whatever, whatever the hell basketball looks like. I'm excited to see just the guys that we're familiar with that we've like, you know, but we've, we spend so much time with on a regular basis on a day to day, um, grinding it out. These are the, these are the people that we spend our evenings with. Right. And they're going to be back and, and, and our weekends watching them play in tournaments. So it'll be interesting. I hope it works out
1: the way it looks. I mean, there's a chance the next two majors could be the French open and the French open because wow. Australia in January looks very dicey as well, just because of the various restrictions they've put in place yeah. to try to keep their numbers low. So that, that's a huge question mark too. Um, and obviously with, with the U S kind of going in the wrong direction um, that, you know, has people questioning whether the U S so them can go forward. So that's a possibility out there as well.
0: Okay. The road to French, 2009 a very hard road for Roger obviously but also for his fans myself included uh i couldn't even watch some of these videos so i'm going to lean on you to sort of nurse me through some of these bitter bitter defeats but i think the overarching theme here and one of the reasons why this isn't a really important episode is that uh he got his butt kicked he got far look he advanced and advanced and advanced but he lost when it when it mattered but he turned it around right and, and it culminated with this french open victory so it's a Testament to greatness is losing, but getting up when you fall down. Right? You mentioned Dwayne Wade earlier. You fall down eight times, you get up nine. Right? This is that whole notion. We've already addressed this. His sheer dominance; those days are now over. We're closing out this decade. It's 2009. We're going to be going into 2010, and that decade is going to only have his remaining Grand Slams. But it's going to be a a, there's going to be a drastic fall off in performance, Um, and it starts right here. Loses Madrid Masters to Murray in the semifinals. Right after he beat Murray in the US Open. Murray beats him quite a bit, actually, in 2009. Um, wins at Basel, beating Nelbandian. Loses the Paris Masters to Blake in a quarterfinal. Loses a semifinal in Doha against Murray again. And then the Australian Open final against the Nadal. Uh, I did go back and watch it reluctantly late last night because I needed to see it with my own eyes again because I remember vividly the post the, the press conference yes. i was crying with him as ridiculous as it was i thought i will say this um he should have spoken like he should have honored his opponent he said it's killing me and he had to take a break and i don't know if you remember um the the mc or whatever he's called he's like we're gonna let Rod just settle down <laughs> and then yeah. we're gonna have him come back <laughs> that was hilarious that was just hilarious because he was like a man talking to a boy almost saying like okay like. Gather yourself, young man, yeah. and then uh, Ro- Roger does come back and says, you know, a, v- a very thoughtful thing. But he was devastated, Brian. This was Rafa's first hard court final. It was a five setter, and Roger played through a decent field to get there: uh, Saffin, Burdick, Del Potro, Roddick, uh, and he battled back from down two sets to one. What's your recollection? What's your imprimatur on? this Australian Open I think you've said it's one of the greatest ever Well my immediate uh, remembrance
1: is falling falling asleep at some point in the second set because it was like 3:30 in the morning on a Sunday um, but yeah it was he played poorly in that second set or in over the first two sets obviously came back and then just didn't play well in the fifth set and the way he lost and the way he was so emotional, I wonder if a lot of that emotion was coming from the fact that he might be thinking, am I ever going to beat this guy again? Because that is now the third final in a row he lost to Nadal. Lost him in Paris in 08, Wimbledon 08, and now here Melbourne in 09. So that's three finals in a row he's lost to Nadal. Nadal is looking like the absolute world beater, and Federer might just be thinking, is this it? Like, am I not going to be able to beat this guy because I haven't been able to right now? Um, I will agree with you that, yeah, it's very emotional, but this is part, start of that run where Federer sometimes in the, in the post-match isn't always as gracious, uh, in defeat as maybe you'd like. Um, I understand, you know, the ego is what it is because he's at this point, you know, he's got a boatload of grand slam trophies, number one in the world and all that, but yeah, you'd like a little bit more of the that approach, but whatever it is, what it is. Um, but yeah, I think he left Melbourne and the tennis world left Melbourne with serious thoughts. Okay, is this just now the Nadal ascendancy and is Federer going to have to be this supporting player for the foreseeable future? Because I just don't see how he can beat this
0: guy. He did, uh, Rafa did have one of the greatest winners of all time. After he scrambled back, he, he slid to return a ball back to Roger and Roger hit a would-be winner. Um, and Rafa just smashed a forehand right down the baseline, uh, in the fourth set. And when I saw that, I remember seeing it in the first time in real time. And I remember watching it again. And, uh, like Roger, uh, you just, you feel like he fell into the, the court opened up and he fell into it because it was like you said, it was just, he's, he's a world beater. Um, and actually I will say this is when I became a legit fan of Rafa when I when I was like okay look I got to make room in my heart for this guy because the shots that he's returning, Agassi never returned them, um, and at this point we haven't seen Djokovic as the greatest returner of all time yet. He's he's great but he's not. I mean, Ra- this was Rafa's moment, and just watching rally after rally in this match, it's like he earned it, and it's exactly what Rogers said, which I thought was a you know despite the initial sort of you know. I can't speak. It's breaking my heart. And he had to step back. He did come back strong. After Nadal hugged him, by the way, Nadal embraced him and sort of was like, it's okay. Let's, let's get through this together. It was a very human moment. Um, you don't see that between opponents. That there's something special between them. I'm not sure what it is. He goes up and he says, look, I want to let Rafa have the last word here. He deserved it. And that was his version of basically saying, you kicked my ass. Right. And, and that was a great, that was big for Roger.
1: Yeah, it's that I I think there's that mutual respect when you've both been out there just trying to beat the other guy for five hours that okay, you're you're still heartbroken, but you went through like you're the only two people that know what it's like to be on in that moment at that time. So I think that's why that's where that mutual respect comes from. Obviously with these two, it's at a different level, especially like we said, they had met in three of the last major finals.
0: And the connective thread of that, I should say, is that the French Open that we're gonna talk about at the end of the pod is Rogers, Roger had played Nadal in the three past finals and lost, right? So there's, there's that. And you're expecting him to get there again. And had it, been, had it turned out differently, had Robin Soderling not existed, what would we be talking about today kind of a thing? But it's all part of this great storyline for 2009, right? Great and tragic at the same time, I should say. Tragic? Well, tragic, you know, because uh, he's not... I wanted him to be number one. And, oh, okay. and I didn't want to see, look, it's, it was extremely painful. I'm a fan of his, like, uh, I, you know, this, you know, this since the beginning, I'm an yes. unapologetic fan of his, he's my team. I want my team to win. Okay. If my team doesn't win, I'm devastated. You know, it's, right, it's, but
1: he still wins, you know, two, two of the four, he's in four major finals this year. He's in two finals and he completes the career grand slam. That's not a tragic year.
0: No, it's not. It's not. It's the same thing with like the whole LeBron thing. LeBron has only won three championships. But he went to nine straight finals, right? It's the, and it's the whole Tom Brady argument, too. You can't have them all. How many Super Bowls has Tom Brady been to? I think he's been to he's nine. He's been to eight. 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 He's lost yeah. to
1: the Giants twice and the Eagles.
0: So the losses hurt, too. And part of that is a spoiled fan, right? You just expect greatness to like you know uh, compound and beget more greatness. But when it's all said and done, looking back at this as a retrospective, you really do appreciate the losses because a lot of guys, a lot of people, Brian, would just pack it in. You know, uh, right. th- it's that fight that you respect. It's that Rocky mentality of like, I'm going to go back. I I'm, I'm just going to like, uh, I watched the 60 minutes thing we talked about, uh, with Nadal a few days back this past weekend. And one of the ultimate compliments to Nadal is that he plays to this, to this day, to 2020, he plays like he's broke. Right. And you lose that, you know, Rocky three, Mickey says you got civilized. Once you're civilized, yeah. once you're not a fighter anymore. And I think that that's something, Roger is civilized, don't get me wrong, but Roger has this fight in him and so does Nadal and so does Djokovic to an extent. But they have this, that's what makes you lock into them as, as fans. It's what makes you become obsessed with them. It's what makes you remember them for generations, right? They, they, they connect with you through the screen and what they're doing. And Nadal did that in this Grand Slam in the Australian Open. And something else that that comes through to me
1: from this is leaving Melbourne, like we said, you're thinking, okay, this is going to be the Nadal takeover because he's now beaten Federer the last three times I met in finals. He currently holds three of the four major titles. Here's his first hard court title. Um, So this is Nadal. And it it didn't happen that year. Um, And because of – really because of injuries. And that goes to show, I think – the rarity of the, the Federer dominance from the previous decade, because as we said, Federer was always blessed with great health. Nadal, the way his game style and maybe just bad luck has not had the same flawless record with health that Federer did. So it goes to show, this is really freaking hard to try to get to the top and stay at the top because Nadal's at the top right now, but he doesn't solidify it over the course of 2009, in the way you thought he would after this Australian open. Mm. The other thing, too, with Nadal, and he talked about this in his book, leaving that tournament, like on the plane back to Spain, um, his parents actually, or I think his father told him that uh, they were getting divorced and that he talked about. He's such a a family guy, close-knit family unit, and he talks about just how how devastating that was for him. So 2009 for Nadal, not just physical issues, but you wonder how was that affecting him, just the the -the off-the-court stuff, how was that affecting his on-the-court product?
0: Interesting. His book called Rafa, right? Yes. Yeah. I remember reading that. Four more losses, Brian, for Federer. Consecutive losses. Indian Wells to Murray again, semifinals. Well, let me just stop you. Consecutive in terms of
1: tournaments without a title. Like he didn't lose. Yeah. Yeah. Loses the Miami Masters to Novak. Very, very rare. One of the, ve- maybe the only time in the entire course of the show we'll see this that Djokovic. Uh, Miami Masters semifinal, he had a racket smash from Federer, something you never ever see. Just absolutely wasted the racket after missing a ball.
0: And to go back to the thing with uh, Nadal in sixty minutes, he has never smashed a racket. He actually, I, I think he, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm also adding a word. The the racket is treated like almost like a religious fixture in their family, and sort of like you don't. You don't disrespect the racket is sort of the message right. that I got from him. So that was a very cool thing, another very admirable sort of aspect of his game.
1: Yeah, that's a big part of the the Nadal legend when he was working um with his uncle Tony. And I, I've always said this too. I mean, all these guys are have done great things for the world at large, for their local communities. But in terms of just like a day-to-day, you know, you can say what you want about athletes as role models, but a lot of like what Nadal says, I think applies to the most people like on on just like a daily level like sports out of sports whatever like you, like in terms of the philosophy you can do you can learn a lot from Rafa um yeah when he was very young i think he just kind of tossed a racket in frustration and his uncle said you do that again I'll we're done like i'm never working with you again think about all the kids who can't afford that racket yeah, what they yeah, would yeah. pay to have that racket so yeah he has never i mean forget broken a racket he's never thrown one you you never see anything like that really on the court
0: 1000% in lockstep with you Aside from the fact that he wears a $250,000 watch on his wrist when he plays professional sports, he is super relatable. The things that he says, the things that he does, and I remember watching him in the 60 Minutes thing, again, just to put a capstone on it. He's walking down these steps on this plot of land that he's just bought on the Cape or the, whatever, the, the little the inlet of Mallorca where they're going to build their castle. Um, he shows, he points across the water to where his parents live. And then he points down the other part where his $60 million ship is. And right. it's like it's like Nadal Cove, the, the Nadal family Cove. Somehow that moment seemed very homely and very relatable. Almost like if you or I were in the same shoes, like, yeah, we would build a, a palace for our parents across the way. And then we would sh- park our boat just down over there. No, that's exactly what it is. He's a homebody. Yeah, um, he could live anywhere he wants. He could live he could in live, New York. Yeah, you know, he lives and at he could home. go.
1: I'm sure lives somewhere. You know, with friendlier uh, tax policy, like true, many true. other pro athletes do. But he's the guy. You know, we hear all, all the time in the U S. It's like I, I want to, you know, live in my hometown, buy my parents a house, and that's essentially what Rafa does, just on a much, much larger scale. <laughs> he's got his academy there too, as yeah, well, yeah, which is a, a big legacy project.
0: I wouldn't be surprised, though, you know, come on, the world being the way that it is that uh, the Spanish legislature, whoever is the governing body of the island of Majorca, has made some sort of a tax friendly amendment uh, for the Nadal family in the form of his academy that you mentioned. But still, you're right. He doesn't he's paying taxes in places and jurisdictions. There are places where he could live that would essentially pay him to live there. Uh, I, I do agree with you that he is the most relatable superstar, certainly in, in tennis, maybe even in all of sport. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's certainly a conversation. You can. You, it's a point you can make in terms of all sports.
0: Um, last thing before the French Open. Well, no, there's two more losses. We, meant, you mentioned, we mentioned Novak in the racket smash. That racket smash loss, Djokovic, Miami
1: semifinals. That means Roger goes on to clay and he does not have a hard court title.
0: Great point. Loses Monte Carlo Masters in the round of 16 to Wawrinka. And then he loses the Rome Masters to Novak again in the semifinals. Four straight tournament losses. Actually, five straight tournament losses if you count the Australian Open. This is what I meant by not a great year for him. He's definitely in his own head, which I think has been his biggest problem. We've talked about that already. But then this happens. He wins the Madrid Masters on clay against Nadal, 4-4. How did that happen? Well. And you mentioned Nadal's personal life. Did this play into that? I don't think the personal life as much
1: as, you know, we saw what happened with Nadal in terms of losing to, to Söderling at the French Open. There's always been chatter about how, how physically right he was. Um, so was he already carrying some sort of injury? Uh, was Federer in desperation mode knowing, did he play differently? Like, I've lost to this guy so many times in a row. What do I have to lose? Let's just go for here. Maybe is a little bit looser. Maybe it's Nadal playing on on home soil as the favorite, as Rafa Nadal. He's not going to win every single match. Maybe that had something to do with it. But I think this certainly shifted things going into the French open because now you can look at Federer I mean, you're always looking at Federer as a favorite anytime he's in a tournament, but beating Nadal on clay directly before the French open, I I think makes
0: you think, Hey, he can win this tournament. And he does leads us right into Roland Garros, 2009 coming off that victory on clay. He's got to be feeling better than ever. And the first three rounds, Martin, Akasuso, Matteo, Three setter, four-setter, and a four-setter. There were two tie breaks in the Akasuso match to get him nice and sweaty, get a nice little lather going for the rest of the tournament. The fourth round was a point of interest, and I think we've briefly mentioned this in the past too. It was a point of interest for two players, right? It was a point of interest for Roger, uh, who played Tommy Haas. It was a five setter, and it was a point of interest for Nadal, who played Robin Soderling in the fourth set, in the fourth round, and loses. Let's do Roger first, real quick. I actually want to flip that I think it's important for the context that we do
1: Rafa first because the Rafa match was played before the Federer match. Great so point. Federer
0: took the court against Haas knowing Rafa's out of the tournament. Perfect. So Nadal and Soderling played first. The tail of the tape for me, if you will. I went back and looked at this because it's the first time Rogers Rafa's lost on Clay. And who is this, you know, for lack of a better term, MFer that beats this guy on Clay? That's what all the fans are thinking. His forehand was, so two observations from the lay French uh, Open viewer, because I don't watch too many of them, because as you know, Roger didn't really get very far in them. Well, he did, but you know what I mean. Right. The ball is significantly slower, okay? Significantly slower than on other surfaces. I completely saw that now. And that, in my mind, played into Soderling's hands beautifully. He had a wind-up on his forehand that felt like you could take a nap in between the time that the ball touched the clay and he hit it hit it with his racket. The amount of time was just incredible. It slowed down. He was in a zone, and you're actually witnessing it on screen. What did you make of it? Uh, I have some pre- pull quotes from Rafa's presser at the end, but what's your takeaway from this match, and, and how did he go down in the fourth round? Um, well,
1: like we said, I, I think that maybe he just wasn't right. I mean, recent, like this still gets talked about among players. So chatter maybe a month ago, um, from somebody who just retired that, you know, a rumor was Rafa was sick for this match or Rafa was hurt Rafa, this Rafa, that maybe that's the only way these people think that you can explain how Rafa's first ever loss in his fifth French open was to Robin Soderling. Um, but we can also say Robin Söderling was a really good player. His career was cut short by Mono. Um, we have talked about Söderling on this podcast before in pretty funny fashion. If you remember Wimbledon two or three years ago when he played Nadal in a match that took like five days to complete and Nadal not happy with some of the way, neither of them were very happy with each other by the end of it. Söderling, uh, Söderling was mocking him. Mocking Nadal. So Nadal, the famous quote was, uh, we see what happens at the end of the life, essentially implying Söderling's. Going going to hell, um, so there's plenty of bad blood between these two going into this match, um, and it was just one of those things where I remember, y- you know, you it's the morning in the US, you wake up, you check the scores, and you're seeing wait, like Nadal's losing on clay, See, so everybody rushes for the TV, and you see it. I mean, 31 straight wins for Nadal at Roland Garros, um, but Soderling just had all the answers. I mean, he was working with Magnus Norman, who. Had been to the finals of the French Open before. Mm-hmm. And later worked with a couple of of big players um, down the road as well. He it was just the right matchup of player, time, um, and everything else. And he was better than Nadal on the day. And Robin Soderling becomes it, it's it's a shame because you know Soderling in, in history has taken on this like like he gets compared to like Buster Douglas, the guy who beat Mike Tyson, Mm. where that was like a total fluke, Buster Douglas. Oh, man, fitting your hat. Um, Like Buster Douglas was, that was a legitimate fluke. Um, This certainly an upset that Soderling beats Nadal, but Soderling's not some journeyman. Like he won 10 titles in his career. He gets back to the final the following year in 2010. So this was not a one slam wonder. He loses to Nadal who got what I'm sure was pretty sweet revenge. Um, It's really just a shame that, the mono happened when it did, kind of when he was at his peak, kept him off tour for a while. Soderling was actually in the news this week just talking yeah. about um, like how much he struggled with his mental health when he was playing and how more needs to be done for for high-level athletes, especially, I would think, in individual sport. Um, but he, no coincidence, too, he's talking about those tough times right around this time and a little bit later. So once the expectations get bigger – you know he's always going to be. Oh, that's the guy that beating Nadal at the French Open. That's the guy who made the French and Open then what final. Did he do? Right. Well, he, he's got to follow that up. Um, he gets to four in the world, so it just the pressure builds. Uh, he gets mono, and he's just never able to come back from that. And it's a shame, really, because he had certainly a, a very memorable career. But you wonder how much more could he have got? Could he have won one of those French Opens somewhere in that that zone of years? Sure.
0: No, in in looking back, and we were we were sort of, you know, kind of like having fun at his expense last time we talked about him. But he was he's good. He he played. He was. I think. I think another thing that I that I wrote down here is ground strokes were unrelenting against Nadal. He just kept giving it to him, like, like just hammering balls at him. But he was also confident, and that is a rare combination when you're playing against number one, number two, number three player in the world. So hats off to his performance. The Rafa Presser really showed his poise. He lost in the 4th round of the French Open, his home, his turf. He said, "Quote, I have to accept with the same calm when I lose as when I win." And it was, it was just a very stoic Rafa Nadal. Like, where did the, like you what you see on the court is not what you expect to hear on the sidelines. And I think that's one of the enigmatic things about him. And then the the flip side of that is with Roger, what you see on the court is what you expect to hear off the court but you don't it doesn't always translate or work out as as such
1: yeah and i think there's something to be said for that i mean you look at people who are even like think of like great coaches and other sports who aren't you know like like you think of like the yankee dynasty like joe tory the the manager of the yeah. yankees when they won all those world series in the 90s you wouldn't really know anything about the way the game was going if you looked at joe tory's face and it's different obviously in a team sport but Every player on the bench can sense that, that, okay, if the manager's even, if this guy's even, like, he he believes in me to go out and do my job. But if the manager's pacing, sweating, like, yelling things, you're thinking, okay, this guy's rattled and nervous, so I don't really have faith in him. Does he have faith in me? You start questioning that. Now, obviously, tennis, like we said, individual sports, so it's different. But the, the guy on the other side of the net can certainly notice what's going on in his opponent's mind he he might try not to but it's going to be noticed if the opponent's freaking out having some kind of meltdown but if he's all business um, that's a big advantage
0: Mm. Uh, he said something uh, a technical question for you he said something in the presser he said he played short what does that mean? I played short Uh, that he's probably giving
1: I would guess he meant he was giving Soderling too many short balls Um, like just balls that aren't like penetrating the court enough since so Soderling is able to come up and attack that, especially on a clay court where it's slower and you have more time. Um, he's probably just basically not being aggressive enough and like going, not that you need to be painting lines, going for winners, but just leaving too many balls kind of fat in the middle of the court.
0: Allowing for that, that huge time lapse between exactly allowing for him to wind up his shot. Right. And pick where he wants to go. Um, you know, where he wants to paint the court as opposed to the other player. Yeah. Okay. All right, so let's go to Haas, a five-setter with Federer. Roger loses the first two sets. That's the main storyline here. And then he steamrolls 4 2 in the th- third, fourth, and fifth sets. He was playing, like you said, knowing Nadal had already lost. Was this a bit of, this is my moment, I ain't going out like this? A million percent. I mean, I think this is one of the more unique
1: Federer wins because we'd never seen him... It's a very different pressure. Like, okay, Federer's had pressure on him his entire career, especially once he became number one. He's number one in the world. But he's looked at here coming into this tournament as almost maybe something of an underdog. But then all of a sudden, when Nadal's out, into the spotlight, the spotlight goes right to Federer. It had not been on him in this tournament to this extent over the last couple of years. So everybody's thinking now, okay, here it is. This is the time. He's, gonna, he's got a chance to win this tournament without having to beat Nadal. The hard part's done. He can beat everybody else. So Federer takes the court against Tommy Haas, um, knowing all of that. But you know who else knew all that? Tommy Haas. Um, he knows that, okay, Federer, we have, they have very similar game styles. Um, we've talked a little bit about Haas before on the show. I'm actually surprised we haven't talked about Tommy Haas as much as we have. Like their paths uh, didn't cross to the extent. That's one thing I've learned in this, that they did not cross as much in the majors. Um, Haas, we talked about uh, married actually to David Foster's daughter for the the LA aspect out there for you. Uh, he's currently the tournament director at Indian Wells. He's a German guy. He was one of the big Nick Ball Terry guys. Um, big, big physical guy. Big power off the forehand. He's got the one hand backhand like Federer. He's got more power than Roger. Yeah. But as we said, the problem often was with Haas, it was... Between the ears, Uh, some of those pressure moments, he didn't charge through them as much as other guys. There'd be a running monologue to himself often on the court or during the changeover where hes you can hear him just getting down on himself. That's what we talked about with that kind of stoicism and how that can be an advantage. So Haas goes up two sets to love in this match. Fourth set, I was reading uh, Peter Botto of ESPN had a great uh, retrospective. I think it was probably last year for 10 years of this. Haas is up. Um, on serve 4-3 in the third set. He's got a break point on the Federer serve. Mm. So if he wins that point, he's up 5-3 serving for the match and knocking Federer out in straight sets. Haas, in this interview with Peter Botto, said, I'd be lying if I said I didn't think at that point. If I win this point, I'm going to win this match. I'm going to serve him out. I bet everybody thinks that, but you don't often hear people admit that. Well, spoiler alert, that didn't happen. Federer missed the first serve. He's got to come up with a second serve. Haas hits a a very good return and Federer just absolutely goes for it on with an inside out forehand. Haas thinks it's going way out. It somehow catches, I think, the sideline and the baseline. It's a winner. Federer after the match said he thought that was his first good shot he hit all day. It's the most pressure moment of the entire day. Comes up with his best shot, holds serve, breaks Haas, who's now got to have his head spinning, thinking about how did he make that shot? How did that happen? That's probably reflected in the fourth set, which Federer steamrolls through six-love. Haas manages to stabilize a bit in the fifth, gets it to two-all. Then he gets broken. And he told that interview to Peter Bado that once I got broken, I started thinking it's over. And uh, that's pretty much what happened. He thought, there's no way I can recover from this. He couldn't recover. And Federer is on, surviving the Tommy Haas scare.
0: And to your point beautifully, that 6-0 set is that between-the-ears problem. He couldn't shake the point before what just happened. And um, I think you've mentioned this a few times very eloquently. Uh, when you blink on the main stage with Roger Federer, and if you're, that blink is just a millisecond too long, the set is out of control. It's, it's over before you know it.
1: Yeah, and that, that's exactly right. Here's the number that just puts into perspective what Federer did after hitting that shot. When Federer comes up with that shot, Haas is up 4-3, in the third set from that point on Haas wins two more games. Federer wins 15. So 15 to two, the games go after that shot and Federer rolls through. I mean, that, that's just remarkable clutch. Yeah. That's a clutch moment for Roger Federer. If ever, I mean, this whole tournament is, I mean, it's yeah. one of, it's one of the most clutch you know, displays we've seen from Federer. And it's just because Federer is in a different it's like a different angle here. He's yeah. He's the favorite at this point, but he's become the favorite because Nadal's lost. So now all the pressure is on him.
0: Next round. Monfils 6, two, four. Brian, does Monfils have the makings of a grand slam champion?
1: Absolutely. And that's, what's so frustrating about him. Um, he, one of the great junior seasons of all time in 04, 05. Um, he's got all the athleticism, he's got all the shots, he's got all of the – he can play with anybody. Um, but it's just at times, like, there's there's like a drift on court, like a couple of games, just there's a slight drift. And then by that point, it's too late. I mean, he was up big on Feder at the U.S. Open a few years ago. Uh, Roger came back. He saw that lapse from feast. Federer comes back, wins in five. Does he have the makings of a major champion?
0: Absolutely. Who gets one first, if you had to pick? Kyrgios or – uh, Monfils um I would actually say Montfis, um
1: but I, I don't think he does but I if I had to pick like he's in a relationship now with Alina Svitolina um, yeah yeah and yeah. that seems to have worked out well for both of them like it's, it just helps to have that kind of sure somebody who
0: like Agassi and Steffi Graf
1: yeah somebody's who been who knows what you're going through yeah. um so America that's and Roger so maybe he grabs one but um I just don't say it. Speaking of Mirka and Roger, they had gotten married in the weeks before this tournament, and she was soon to deliver their first set of twins. twins. So that's a big, big personal year for some of these guys. We talked about, you know, Nadal, uh, some family discomfort, but here's Federer now married and expecting twin girls.
0: Uh, semifinal, Del Potro. Man, he is such a pleasure to watch, I got to say, when he's on. um. Roger comes back again, down two sets to one. Uh, Again, clutch to your point, this whole tournament. And you really see the kind of problem Del Potro will be going forward, not just for Roger, but just for the tour in general when he's not injured, right? Uh, Got me really curious about his backstory, actually. I, I didn't have time to look into it, but I'm very just genuinely curious about Juan Martin Del Potro. What were some other standout? things for you in the field leading up to the final uh, before we talk about it real quick, or did we cover everything?
1: I mean, I think we covered everything. When you talk about this French Open, you're talking about Robin Soderling and Roger Federer. Uh, this was the the furthest Andy Roddick ever got at the French Open. He lost to Monfils uh, in the fourth round. There was a, um, a great tweet from Roddick a week or so ago because the ATP coaches are currently, as we sit here in July, they're auctioning off some Different experiences and, and memorabilia just as a way to, to raise money really for themselves because they've not been making any money over the last four or five months. Um, and one of them, I guess, is you go to the French Open with I, I forget which coach it was, and, and Roddick retweeted it and basically said, Oh, can we go the second week? Because I've never been to the second week of the French <laughs> Open, which was clever. Love we'll a lot of Roddick talk. Uh, really, our last Roddick talk of this podcast will come next time. Yeah, very familiar year for Roger, too, because. In, um, you mentioned certainly Roddick, or as we talk about Roddick, but Del Potro, he beat him handily in Australia, beats him here, and then, of course, loses to him at the U.S. Open. So they met in three of the four majors in 2009.
0: Yeah. The final, um, kind of ho-hum, actually, except for the guy that jumped onto the court and tried to, uh, what did he try to do, put a hat on Roger or to yeah, like serenade Roger? Like that, yeah, um, Roger handles Sauterling very... Sp- efficiently one six four um my my main question for you is like, it was a clinic and it was a very elegant performance and you knew it was going to be his tournament especially after the second set you just knew it it was it was done uh he was in Soderling's face if nothing else um what was he, what was Roger able to do to defuse Soderling's ground strokes what do you think he took away from his match against Nadal if anything Um, I don't know if
1: he took stuff away from the Nadal match because Federer had a a very good track record against Soderling. Um, Like he had by good track record. I mean, he had never lost to him and had not lost, didn't lose to him for another year or two. Um, I think this is more, this goes back to like old school Federer where, okay, Soderling's got all this power, but Federer's got the quickness. He's got, the movement, he basically has all the other, the things that work so well for him and work well against pretty much everybody, but Nadal on clay, he's able to put those to work here. And, um, it just felt like when you watch his final, it was only going one way. Like there's no way it's like watching the last dance. We talk a lot about the Jordan documentary. Like there's certain games where it's like, there's no way the bulls like Jordan's losing this game. Like this was a match like that for Federer. Like he, he steps on the court. Once he got past those, once he got to the final, there's no way somebody not named Rafa Nadal is beating him on the court that day.
0: And he showed it. And it was a beautiful moment, Brian. Context or match point. The crowd was cheering. They actually did not quiet please. There was no quiet please. They were cheering like it was a like a like a college football game. It was a ruckus crowd. He didn't care. He served a brilliant serve and then falls to the ground. The tears We've watched 14 of these now. I think this was the biggest burst or the most sort of organic burst of tears that we've seen. Um, Epic moment for him. Epic moment for fans of the sport, obviously. Capstoned, I thought it was very beautiful and timely and sort of, uh, I don't know who planned that. Whoever whoever planned that should get some recognition. Having Agassi present Roger with the trophy, significance there, of course, is that he's only one of a handful of other players to win all four Grand Slams at that point, right? Yeah. Just a great moment. What do you remember from the final?
1: Yeah, just that it had that feel of like a coronation, like he's been waiting this long for this career. I mean, remember, he played his first major, uh, his first Grand Slam match was at the French Open. Uh, like he grew up playing on clay, but this is the one tournament that he just could not win. So to complete the career Grand Slam, I mean, think about like with Sampras, like he was maybe and he's probably in the five greatest players of all time, but you say Sampras's name to somebody first oftentimes thing they say back to you is, yeah, but he never won the French open. So yeah. like, there's always that asterisk hanging over people who don't win the career grand slam. And you've seen that, you know, down the line. I mean, Djokovic completed his career grand slam here in Paris as well. So you could also see that similar thing of just what an accomplishment that was for him. Nadal did it at the U S open. So it's a little bit different, but just once they're able, like, I guess it, you almost get – you don't get numb to the winning, these guys, but this is so new. It's yeah. something you, you've you tried. You've dominated everywhere else, but this one has stayed away from you. But now you've solved it. You're the champion. Um, it's – you know, think about it, too, for somebody growing up in Europe, watching tennis growing up. Yeah, okay, Wimbledon, to Wimbledon, but, like, I, you're in Paris on the clay. Like, it's just so iconic to do it there. Um, it's just – It's one of those things you'll, like, we talk about the most important wins for Federer. This is absolutely in the top, like, let's say Mount Rushmore. So top four, Um, like this is, this is a career title for Roger Federer.
0: 14 grand slams now uh, tied with Pete Sampras. Uh, But, you know, with all joy, the immediate, the the criticism immediately surfaces. And it didn't, it, it surfaced pretty quickly after this match, actually. If you read some of the articles that were written. There's this uncomfortable debate uh, about, you know, the uncomfortable debate now begins in earnest, right? Rafa dominates him in head-to-heads, and Novak will begin to press and encroach even harder on that too. And he didn't beat Rafa in this final, which we've already agreed doesn't matter. You play who's in front of you. So that doesn't really count. But these guys, I'm thinking back to Sampras now, because Sampras basically said, I never thought it would take, I never thought it would happen in seven years that my record would be kind of, you know, toppled down. My thing on that though is in Rogers' defense, Nadal and Djokovic took his thunder faster than he did Sampras's. I mean, they haven't eclipsed 20 yet, but I mean, if they were not in the picture, there was no Nadal and Djokovic to to counteract any of Sampras. Sampras didn't really have a a rival of those magnitudes. And I feel like if Roger didn't, this is the one argument I have with any friend I have, is like, look, if Roger didn't have Rafa in the picture, he'd have 25. He'd be with where Serena is right now, if not greater. And I think to to make the final sort of point on that is, I feel like Roger's handled it pretty well. He's befriended them. Uh, keep your friends close, your enemies closer. Him and Djokovic have a thing worked out. And he's sort of this elder statesman and he got to where he got. He's at 20 right now. And no one's ever really going to be able to take that away from him. Um, and I think this final puts him in Jordan status. There might be somebody, Brian, that gets more than six rings. There might be, okay? But and there might be another quarterback that gets more Super Bowls than Tom Brady. But he is crystallized as the GOAT, whether you like him or not. And I feel like this crystallized Roger. As a goat. Now we're at, we have twenty, but winning the French, to your point, was a super important thing to separate him from Sampras. He was the first one to do it uh, between Nadal and Djokovic, which also helps him a little bit. And it's just a very important thing. It's definitely on the Mount Rushmore. Um, definitely the most moving one for me as a fan too. We talked about this at the beginning. Four straight French Open finals, losing three to Nadal. He's the second greatest clay court player of all time. Is that a hot take?
1: That's uh, an incorrect take.
0: Tell me why. Because
1: Bjorn Borg won the French Open five times.
0: Oh, okay. Yes, I stand corrected. He's, the, he's on the Mount Rushmore of greatest clay court players of all time. Um, Four straight finals. I
1: don't know about that either. Um. I also want to apologize to Bjorn Borg who won the French open six times. Um, (laughs) It was four in a row. That's what it was. was Six total. Um, Has Nadal won it four in a row? Yeah. He won it 05 through 08. So that's four right there. then I think he had a five in a row at one point. So yes. (laughs) Um, No. And it's also different too, because it wasn't as specialized back then as it is now in terms of the surfaces. So it, it's a little strange to say somebody's, oh, this person's like, yeah, Nadal's the greatest clay court player of all time, but to put Federer in there, like, yeah, is maybe the greatest player of all time, but it, it's, it's like splitting hairs to say, oh, he's also the greatest or one of the five greatest clay court players of all time. Yeah. He's one of the five greatest players of all time, but it, it gets a little just more convoluted. I think.
0: Any straight items, my friend?
1: Uh, big fan of the Federer shirt here.
0: Oh uh, Yeah. I forgot to ask you about the Nadal shirt. We got to go back to Nadal. The Nadal look, the fuchsia shirt, and the yellow headband. Was that a distraction?
1: Liked it a lot. I'm sure he doesn't because he lost. Um, I was a big fan of that look. I was a big fan of it, too. Uh, but the Federer shirt here, one of the good ones. And you wonder, okay, is it so good because it's such like an iconic like Federer moment? Uh, but he had that that Nike shirt. It was like the light blue yeah. with a darker blue collar and like button line down the center. Uh, these... Darker shorts with a
0: a light blue stripe down the side. Very good look from Roger. Okay, so we are are at Sampras land now. He's he's accomplished the goal that we, when we started the podcast, he's accomplished the goal, if you will, of getting to that point of being Sampras or better. Um, We got six more slams to go. What's on tap uh, as far as him separating himself from Sampras and the rest of the field in general? Well, we're going to
1: just cross the channel, go to Wimbledon 2009. Um, I would – Andy Roddick seems like somebody who's pretty comfortable with his accomplishments and what he did. He won a major. He's number one in the world. But I would venture a guess that if there's a match that here in 2020 ever keeps Andy Roddick up at night, it's the 2009 Wimbledon final uh, because it is the one that you could say he should have won over Federer. Uh, Not to spoil it too much, but that's where we'll be going next. Pete Sampras will be in the house because Federer's – Gunning to overtake him. Uh, so that's a big one. Trivia, leave you with this because this is a, our one and only stop here at Roland Garros in Paris. Okay. Um, Australian Open, Rod Laver Arena, U.S. Open, you've got the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, Arthur Ashe Stadium. Who was Roland Garros? Do you know? Is this? it uh, Philippe Chatrier? Chatrier is the stadium. Okay. Um, court Philippe Chatrier is the stadium. Philippe Chatrier was one of the great French players. Uh, the so some French uh, tennis uh, history lesson, the trophy Federer wins and whoever wins the French Open on the men's side, it's the Coupe des Musketeers. so the, the Musketeers Cup. Uh, when the Davis Cup was like the biggest international sporting event in the 20s, uh, France had these players for them and they were known as the, the Musketeers and Philippe Chatrier was one of the Musketeers.
0: Mm. Who is Roland Garros? I don't know. Tell me about him.
1: Roland Garros was not a tennis player. He was a, an aviator during the first world war, like the early days of like fighter pilots, like the red Baron. So yeah, they, and they named the entire tennis complex after him. Any specific reason that he, was he a fan of tennis? Did he have a nexus to tennis? No, he was just like a French hero. I actually need to, I shouldn't have asked you this because I misspoke on Chatrier. He was not one of the musketeers. He was like a, he did play, but he was like the French, like head of the associate, the Federation for a long time. Um, so they, they named the court after him Interesting. Uh, at Roland Garros and Suzanne Longlon. She was one of the great women's players of all time, a, a pioneer there. They named it after Roland Garros just because um, he was like a French
0: hero fascinating uh
1: one of the musketeers as i'm sure i've lost everybody by this point one of the musketeers was Rene lacoste whose nickname was the crocodile and i'll let you imagine which clothing line he started
0: <laughs> good stuff as always bud have a nice uh you're, you're taking a break you're taking a vacation next week so we'll be back uh the following week to discuss grand slam number 15 uh enjoy your travels be safe and i will talk to you soon thanks Vic. you too